All right. We are here to talk about differences. I don't think I need to make a case for the fact that these differences exist and that in general, this world, even we here in the church, don't handle differences very well. Uh, a country rife with racial tension, destructive political polarization, mass moral confusion, but even inside the church, right, these issues are still at play. Church politics, denominational conflict, racism that exists even in the church, uh, dramatic differences in political affiliation, and clearly a moral distinction from the world in which we are called to live as God's chosen people. Big differences exist. Convictional differences exist. These things really matter, which is why they are a source of contention. So I don't need to make a case for any of that, I hope. But knowing these differences exist provides, we here as the church, it gives us an incredible opportunity. I've said, these differences exist out there, these differences exist in here. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we have something that the world doesn't have. We have something that unites us. We have something that supersedes every earthly claim for our allegiance. And it's simply this, Jesus is Lord. Paul writes in Philippians 2, Therefore God exalted him, that's Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our love for Jesus unites us. Our submission to his lordship unites us. And his command that we are to love one another creates a safe space in which we can have hard conversations because we know that at the end of the day, Jesus is Lord. So, differences. We're going there. And we're going to spend a little bit of time there. Our series is called Differences in Dignity. And over the next four weeks, as you've seen on your bulletin, as we warned you last week, we're going to talk about differences in the church that create conflict and how we handle them. We're going to talk about differences in race and background and how racism is still prevalent in the church and needs to be addressed. We're going to talk about politics and what do we do with faith when it comes to the political arena and lastly, how does the church now interact with an unbelieving world with such cataclysmic differences? Uh, we have our work cut out for us. Our job, my goal is not to tell you what to think. So let's be very clear on that. I'm not here to tell you what the right answer is on all of these things. But rather, my goal is to encourage you to think biblically, to think Christianly about these things for you to take some of the tools that we're hoping to equip you with over the next four weeks so that you can then think biblically and Christianly about these issues and in dialogue with one another, come to conclusions that you believe on our Christ. So with that said, we're probably going to make mistakes along the way. I'll say something stupid or inadvertent or I'll offend you. Please know up front, that's not my goal. And if you could extend me a little bit of grace, knowing that I'll probably make some mistakes along the way, well, I'd appreciate it. But even as we keep going, let's start off with some ground rules. 
some ground rules. And this actually frames the entire series, not just this morning, but it's, it's particularly relevant this morning. I want to talk to you at first about two terms where I think there is confusion, but the really important concepts that we need to understand as we're going to try and have this conversation. These terms are dignity and respect. Dignity and respect. Now, these words are super close in meaning, right? In fact, they're overlapping in significant ways. Let's put a Venn diagram up there because they're cool. Obviously, these two terms have this huge area of overlap. What's the difference when you say to some, I'm going to treat that person with dignity or I'm going to treat that person with respect? That's functionally saying the same thing. You're going to be courteous. You're going to be deferential. You're going to extend them uh, the grace of assuming positive motivation for what they're saying. You're not going to be belligerent or demeaning. You're going to be kind. I mean, this, this is general. To treat someone with dignity and to treat someone observably in terms of behavior, they're very similar. Where they're different is the reason or motivation for treating someone that way. That's where these two terms diverge. So let's look at respect for a minute. If we take a look at the idea of respect, uh, special thanks to Dan Barbie, my Latin buddy who knows where words come from and whom I can consult when I say things like, respect comes from the Latin, respectus. But it means to look back, to look back at, or to look around, or to look around at. So this provides the first reason why we should treat someone with deference, courtesy, and kindness is based on looking back at their lives, looking around at who they are and at what they are. Respect is something that is based on one's actions, behaviors, or achievements. You, you say, I respect an astronaut. I don't even know them, but I respect them because they tend to have like multiple PhDs and they've been to outer space. <laughs> and so you say, I, I don't even know you, but I respect your accomplishments. Or you might say, um, you know, I don't actually like you. You might say that to, like, you've, you've all had teachers or professors that are like, oh, I can't stand this person, I don't like the way. They... But maybe they're super accomplished in their field. And so you say, whether or not I like you, that's irrelevant. I will show you respect because you've earned a position in this life, you've, you've accomplished some things. You can just as easily say to somebody, I know I'm supposed to respect you and I used to like you, but the way you just treated that student, the way you demeaned them in front of the whole class, you've lost my respect. You see, respect is something that is earned. It is based on actions, behavior, or achievements, which means it's something that you can give to someone. I give you my respect. It's also something that you can lose. You can lose respect for someone. Now, it's there that it's important to understand the differences between these two words. Because if you have built your case that I'm going to treat people courteously and, and politely, I'm going to be civil in dialogue, and I'm going to honor them, and I'm even going to be kind, and if you do that based on respect, what happens when they lose your respect? What happens when they do something that you consider abhorrent? You're like, I can't even respect you. If that's the reason you were being nice to them in the first place, that reason is no longer there, suddenly 
in some ways, you're morally exempt from treating them with kindness and courtesy? If you're building your case upon respect, and then the respect is gone, how do you interact with someone with whom you disrespect? How do you interact with someone with whom you disagree violently? How do you interact with someone who's lost your respect? Building our interactions on respect, it's certainly an element, but it's not enough, which is why we need to turn to a concept like dignity. And dignity, well, in the Latin, dignitas. But, but this is a different word. It means to have worth or a position or office or authority. Dan was telling me this is a very significant word for ancient Rome, this idea of rank and status. So dignity, notice it's not behavior, actions, or accomplishments. Now it's something that's assigned to you. You're assigned an office. You're assigned a rank. You're assigned a status. You're assigned a worth. Dignity is something that is based on inherent value of a person or an office. Well, where does this inherent value come from? Because we've just made a huge assumption. We've just made the assumption that everyone is deserving of being treated with inherent value. Where does that come from? And the answer is, actually it comes from the Bible. And if you trace even the, sort of the, the American journey and where human rights originate from, and where if you trace it all the way back, you find the Judeo-Christian worldview and a passage like Genesis 1.27 that says, so God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What we have here is at the very beginning of the story, God has created humanity in his image. And because we bear the image of God, every human being, because we bear God's image, he confers dignity upon us all. Every human being has inherent dignity, value, and worth. But the question is why? Any worldview questions, you have to keep penetrating down. Why? Yes, but why? Yes, but why? And ultimately, the Christian worldview has an answer at the root, which says it is because we are all made in God's image, which means you can say, I disagree with your values, your choices, your lifestyle, and still I will treat you with dignity because you bear the image of God. Whether you know the Lord, whether you follow the Lord, whether you're a Christian or not, you are made in God's image. You reflect some aspect of who God is and what He's doing in the world. And that means you're precious to God. And that would better mean that they're precious to us. So you could say, uh, I don't respect your policy, your behavior. You can say, I don't even like the way you treat other people. You can say, you've lost my respect but you still have dignity because you're made in God's image. And I will continue to treat you with dignity even though we disagree violently about some of these issues. So the goal of this series is not to get you to respect everybody because there are people who hurt us in this world and it's really hard to respect someone who's hurt you. There are people who are demeaning or hurtful to others and it's really hard to respect those people. And it's hard to respect people whose values and choices impact you in significantly negative ways. Respect cannot be the basis 
upon which we treat people because you can lose respect. But dignity, on the other hand, dignity is something that is unlosable because it is conferred upon us by God. So while there is overlap, respect is something that is earned. Or even sometimes you're given the benefit of the doubt. I don't even know you, but I'll start out by respecting you until you prove otherwise. And so respect is something that can be lost. But dignity, dignity on the other hand, that is something that is conferred upon every human being by God because we're made in His image. And that is going to shape the way we interact, even in our disagreements. It means we will be civil. It means we will be humble. It means we will be thoughtful. It means we will listen, not just for our turn to talk, but listen to understand other people around us. It means we will be truthful. It means we will be gentle. And it means we will be kind. Kindness is decidedly underrated in this world. So when we say we're doing a series on differences and dignity, that's why we're not saying it's a series on dignity and respect. If that distinction is not clear, come downstairs after. We'll go further. But that's the foundation upon which this whole series is based, is that first, Jesus is Lord. And because of that, we can create a safe space to disagree because at the end of the day, Jesus is Lord and that much we agree on. But secondarily, we're making a commitment to treat one another with dignity even when we disagree so completely that we might even lose respect for one another, we will still treat one another with dignity because the image of God that each one of us has. We good with those ground rules? Does that make sense? Yes, Tim. Okay, great. <laughs> then let's get to what we're talking about today. Today, we're talking church. We are talking church. And I'm starting with the church because this is the easy one. Okay, maybe it's not the easy one. Maybe it's the safest one because of that whole Jesus is Lord thing, right? So even if I offend all of you, at the end of the day, I, I love Jesus, you love Jesus. Can we still get along? Compared to all the other topics, this is the safest. But that doesn't mean that the differences that exist in churches are insignificant. The differences and disagreements that happen in churches, they hurt people in real ways. So please, when I say this one's easier than the others, it doesn't mean it's less hurtful or less significant or less important. In fact, I would argue it might even be more hurtful because this is the place we're supposed to love one another. And when you get hurt here, where else can you go? To find a place that will accept you and love you. These disagreements that happen at church, church is supposed to be safe, so if we're hurt here, it seems like an even deeper level of betrayal. And yet, if you look at church history, we're not so good at getting along. The history, even, if you, some big ticket areas of disagreement inside the church, they lead to this phenomenon. Well, you know, we are a non-denominational church here at Community Church. We're going to get there this morning. We're going to talk about non-denominationalism. But in order to understand non-denominationalism, we've got to understand denominations. That's where we have to start. Because these are some of the areas of some of the most significant disagreement in the church. It's when it comes down to, well, what do you think the Bible says? Well, what do you think the Bible says? 
well, I think you're wrong. Well, I think you're wrong. And soon enough, you've got some significant disagreement. And groups of people who love Jesus fragmenting into smaller and smaller instances. But even before we can talk about the differences between denominations, we need to start with what we agree on because I categorically tell you the things we agree on completely outweigh anything that we might disagree on. What are some of the things we agree on? Now, I'm not just talking you and me. I'm talking churches for the last 2,000 years. I'm talking church around the world and throughout history has a common core set of inviolable beliefs of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, what it means to be a Christian. Here come some of them. And the, the language over the years has, has evolved, but Here's, you know, the Bible, inspired, trustworthy, and authoritative. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all one God. Humanity created good, and yet all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. We are under a death sentence. So God sent Jesus, fully God, fully man, who came to earth. He went to the cross, an historical event. He took the penalty for our sin upon himself, and by his sacrifice, our sins are atoned for. We have been set free. The resurrection, an historical event verified by eyewitnesses, and the resurrection life of Jesus is applied to us and offers us new life with our God, and we have hope because Jesus promised he is going to return. When he returns, he will judge, which is a little scary, but there is the recreation element, a new heaven, a new earth, and the end verdict of the story is that sin and death don't win. Life with God now and forever is available through faith in Jesus. This is what we believe. Everything else is secondary, right? This is our agreement. So even as we disagree about things, we have to keep coming back to the areas of agreement to remind ourselves that what we agree on are matters of cosmic importance compared to the practices we disagree about. But we still disagree about stuff. And, and here's kind of a reality. There are, and some people will even disagree with this statement. So here's a disagreement right away. There are some issues in the Bible where there is disagreement among Christians who hold the Bible as the final authority on faith and practice. I'm not talking about differences in interpretation between Christians and an, excuse me, an unbelieving world. I'm not talking about differences between Christians who believe in the Bible and Christians who kind of don't, and whether those believe the Bible's optional. It's a nice book. I'm talking about Christians who say we are building our lives on the authority of Scripture. And we're doing everything we can to responsibly interpret the text so that it governs our life, faith, and practice. And among that group of people, I'm telling you, there are issues in the Bible where there is disagreement among Christians. And historically, this is where denominations come from. Take, for example, church leadership. Should there be bishops over large swaths of areas with multiple churches that answer to bishops? Or should there be pastors and elders who govern individual congregations? Or should it be the congregations themselves who are governing their own body in sort of a democratic process? There's differences that lead, denominations handle that very differently. Talk about baptism, infant baptism versus baptism only once a child has reached an age where they can confess that Jesus is Lord. 
Uh, you look at spiritual gifts, especially the miraculous ones. Nobody has a problem with the gift of hospitality. But everybody's got issues with prophecy, tongues, miraculous healings, right? You look, think of denominations that you've heard of, and you can already know, well, there's, there's the Pentecostal, there's the Presbyterian, there's the Lutheran. You, they start lining up. These are the issues that have been in conversation and have caused conflict in the church for centuries. Now, about 130 years ago, a more significant uh, disagreement arose in the church with the emergence of, the, of Protestant liberalism. The approach to the Bible began to be part of the conversation. As the Enlightenment came through and human rationality began to be seen as the ultimate uh, guide for life, people took the Bible, instead of being authoritative and, and trustworthy, they began to say, you know what, actually human rationality supersedes that. And so the Bible, instead, they said, anything in the Bible is supernatural. I mean, obviously, that couldn't have happened. And so that writes off a swath of the Bible, and actually a significant swath of the Bible. And then there's the things that are hard or difficult or no longer fashionable or trendy and that are difficult to navigate. And so, well, those are actually malleable. The Bible retains significance. The Bible is still a cherished book, but it is no longer authoritative or certainly no longer final. And so... We saw the, the birth of liberalism in the church, not a political liberalism, but a religious, a Protestant liberalism that said, we sort of said, the Bible is a beautiful book that's sort of relevant, as opposed to what eventually became known as evangelicalism, which came back to the Bible and said, listen, the Bible remains textually inspired by God and uh, authoritative for all matters of faith and practice. Yes, there are supernatural things in the Bible. That's because God is supernatural. Uh, yes, there are hard things in the Bible. That's because if you want to live a holy life, it's hard. Yet we're still going to wrestle with it and live our lives in accordance with it. But even aside from some of these massive, massive issues, there's even the smaller issues, right? Organs or guitars, people. I lived through the 80s and 90s, the worship wars, this split churches, um, liturgy, formal, are you wearing robes and swinging incense, or are you wearing untucked shirts? Culture, do we withdraw from the culture to form an alternative to the culture in a fundamentalist withdrawal? Do we aim to overcome the culture and make the culture into the kingdom of God with triumphalism, or do we try and influence and transform the culture from within? We have no shortage of reasons to disagree with one another. Hopefully you can see that at this point in time. And those disagreements have led to denominations. Um, a lot of that came from Dr. Greg Wills from Southern Seminary. He's got some great YouTube videos that just sort of walk through the history of where these denominations come from. But eventually you end up with a list that could fill an entire screen with different flavors of Christianity, sort of a Baskin-Robbins feel, 31 flavors, except there's hundreds of them. And yeah, I could just keep going and fill the screen, except I was, I was interested in this other thing that says, okay, let's just say those are some of, not all of, but some of the main categories. But then you can take a category and say, well, you know what? They couldn't even get along because now there's, uh, there's United Methodist, Methodist Episcopal, Primitive Methodist, African Methodist Episcopal, Traditional Methodist, Wesleyan. And, and so this whole branch of Christianity emerges. And my favorite to pick on is the Baptists, because that's my tradition. But Baptists are also an in, a group of independent churches, right? So what does that breed? But independence. And so you've got the Southern Baptists, right? They're the, big, the biggest. 
But then you've got American Baptists, you've got in Canada, you've got Fellowship Baptists, there's General Baptists, Conventional Baptists, Independent Baptists, Calvinist Baptists, Primitive Baptists, uh, Old Regular Baptists, and now there's this thing that people are calling Baptistic, which means we're pretty much Baptists, but we don't want to be under any kind of umbrella of denominational affiliation. <laughs> Remember we agree about stuff? <laughs> it doesn't seem like it anymore, but... But we do. We can never forget the things that all of those denominations all agree on this, this stuff, the big stuff, the most important stuff. So we're talking about differences where these secondary areas exist. And by secondary, I don't mean they're unimportant. I just mean they are secondary to things like salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. So how do you handle theological disagreement in the church? This is what it comes down to. This is what we're talking about. How do we handle it when we disagree theologically? Well, option number one is to form a denomination. And that's what we've seen across hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of church history. And actually, lest you think I'm being flippant or disrespectful or lacking in dignity, denominations can be a beautiful, beautiful thing. You're thinking, you're a non-denominational church. You're supposed to hate denominational. No, non-denominational is not anti-denominational. Denominations can be a good thing. Joining together with others who think like you do on some of these secondary issues means you don't have to keep working through the secondary issues. You can get on with the gospel. You can be missional because you're not constantly arguing about these secondary issues. Or from a stylistic perspective, if you value high liturgy and, and the beauty of the, and the intentionality and the formality and the reverence that it demonstrates to God, you will chafe if your pastor wears boots. I'm wearing shoes. And yet, if you love the full band and the darkened room and the spirit smoke and the electric guitars, going to a liturgical church is going to just be so there's value in saying look we're, we're different styles we have different gifts we have different temperaments we have different interests let's gather a group of people so we can stop arguing about all this stuff and get on with the mission of the church to spread the love of jesus christ to an unbelieving world denominations can be a beautiful thing and they can be a dangerous thing yes i am going to go there too because you can take areas of secondary importance and elevate them to the place of seeming like they're of primary importance. It's a category error. You form an opinion about one of these areas where there's disagreement, even historically and globally among Bible-believing Christians. You take an opinion, I think this is the right answer, and then you hold that opinion as though it were undeniable biblical truth. And then you require everyone else to believe it too, or else they're not really Christians. And you hear things like, well, we're the only real church. We're the only true church. If you were with us in the Sunday morning seminars back in the fall, we kept saying there are two dangers that we fall into as human beings. Elevation. My denomination is the right denomination. My denomination is the best denomination. And projection. Therefore, you should all be like me. Neither one of those things is healthy, good, right, or honoring to Christ. So what's the other option? 
Option one is form a denomination, which can be done well, but there are dangers. What's option two? You know what's coming. Go non-denominational. That's just dangerous. Seriously, it's, it's dangerous. It sounds really good. It plays well. It makes a good Twitter post or, or, or a bumper sticker. Rise above the issues that divide us and celebrate what unites us. Yeah. But it kind of sounds a little naive too because there are differences and these differences matter and handling differences poorly hurts people. It can be a dangerous thing if you take areas of secondary importance, yet still vital importance, and ignore them, leaving people confused and hurt by inconsistent theology and unclear practices. Here's, the, here's how not to do non-denominationalism. Oh, we disagree? Let's stick our heads in the sand and pretend like we don't disagree. Let's not talk about any of this stuff. And maybe the problems will go away. Interestingly, this is a myth. Ostriches do not bury their heads in the sand. They tend to make their nests in hollows, in recessions in the landscape so that a predator at a distance doesn't see the profile of an ostrich nest come over and eat the eggs. They, they, they build their nests below ground level, but they still reach their heads in to turn the eggs. And so from a distance, it looks like an ostrich is burying his head in the sand. It's not burying his head in the sand. Sorry, science teacher moment. I, but the illustration remains even if it's not true, right? The point I'm making is ignoring problems, I'm pretty sure has never ever in the history of the world made them go away. If you avoid talking about areas where you disagree, it tends to cultivate a community of people who do not think deeply about their faith because it might lead to conflict or disagreement. And when an issue of disagreement comes up, the community lacks either a denominational framework for handling it graciously or the tools to engage it responsibly. It's not a good solution. Non-denominationalism is dangerous, much less from, a set, from, a, from the perspective of accountability. In a denomination, there are groups of churches working together that if one church starts to slide sideways, sideways doctrinally, there is a community of churches and a, an authority structure that can say, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Come on back, here's the gospel. An independent, non-denominational church? Man, they can go sideways easily. We need a vigilance as we cling to God's word to make sure we don't fly sideways. Non-denominational can be dangerous. But it can also be really, really good. And I wouldn't be here in this church if I didn't believe that. The, the other alternative to crashing and burning or to an ostrich sticking his head in the sand is to try and get up with an eagle eye to be able to see the plurality of viewpoints as we responsibly attempt to interpret Scripture so that we can understand the differences. That even if we disagree on some of these areas, at least we disagree with an understanding of what the other believes and we are able to treat one another with dignity. Incidentally, eagles do fly. That's not a myth. <laughs> so, back to the reality. There are some issues in the Bible where there is disagreement among Bible-believing Christians. 
and we've already touched on some of them that have formed denominations, but others are just bubbling beneath the surface of churches as they try and muddy their way through life. Creation, use of alcohol, gender roles, the Lord's Supper, spiritual formation, engagement with culture, worship styles, biblical headship, baptism, election, end times, and spiritual gifts. How do we handle these? As a non-denominational church, how do we handle these? Once again, I offer you two perspectives. A, we form our own denomination, a denomination of one. And we say, we have decided what the right answer is on every one of these issues. And if you disagree with us, you should probably go find a church that is more aligned with your theology. It's an option. It happens. This is, this is where denominations come from. Split, 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 split. I'm not saying it's a good option <laughs> by any means. I am not endorsing this candidate. The alternative is to live with the tension. Oh, I don't want to live with tension. Make things black or white, Tim. Make things clear. You're either yes or no. None of this maybe. And yet, come on, you've lived life. Life is filled with tensions that don't resolve easily. And usually we get into the most trouble when we try and make tensions go away. The calling is to live with this tension and extend grace to one another as we make our way through life together. So, what does that actually look like? There is a handout that will be available downstairs afterwards if you come to the talkback session. And it looks like this. It is called non-denominationalism or how to relate to others of differing viewpoints. This we did see also in the Sunday morning seminar, so bear with me. You guys can take a nap. This, and special thanks goes to Gene Heacock, who has done some work with uh, interim church ministries, trying to help churches heal after some sort of crisis or losing a pastor. And this is part of the, the tools that he uses. I've adapted it uh, to make more sense for community church. But I, as far as handling these differences, I want to propose some language that can help us navigate our way forward. Biblical convictions is a category of how you cling to the Bible. I have a conviction about the Bible. Biblical persuasions. So it's not a conviction, but now I am persuaded by the evidence that seems to lead in this direction. And then there's biblical opinions. Yeah, I don't really know, but I think it's this. I think part of the problem that causes so much fights is we don't have levels with a, a levels of clingingness, levels of, 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 of grip intensity when we talk about the Bible. Again, we try and it's, it's binary. It's what the Bible says, or that's not what the Bible says. But how about the Bible might say that, or could say this, and there's a tension there, and we're going to have to live in it. So let me give you some examples. Let me work through some of these. In this area of biblical convictions, what, are, what is an example of that? Well, these are the non-negotiables, right? These are, this, this is that page that says agreement and all that stuff. Uh, these are the main themes and assertions in the Bible. Can you guys even read that? My glasses are all messed up. Uh, the foundational truths of Christianity, right? So if you go down to examples, you see the authority of Scripture, the deity of Christ, all kinds of stuff, like the, the, everything we agree on. So how do you interact with others in this? Well, you be willing to be persecuted for your beliefs. 
you be willing to be treated badly because you believe that Jesus is God's son who died for your sins, rose again, and is coming back. And you need to be willing, as hard as it sounds, to break Christian fellowship with people who say, you know what, I don't actually think Jesus was God. I mean, he was a good man and he did all kinds of miracles, but he was just a prophet. And that's a categorical departure from historic and Orthodox Christianity. And that's a moment where you say, you know what, we do not share the same faith. These are the things you're willing to take a bullet for. I will die on this hill. Jesus saved me. All right, let's look at the opposite end of the spectrum. Let's look at biblical opinions. These are variable based on scripture and according to conscience. This has to do mostly with areas of either like interpretation or, or even application of scripture, right? Some examples might be political affiliation. You know, the Bible doesn't come out. You know, we'll get there. <laughs> Date of Christ's return. Well, it's going to be 2028. No, uh, going to movies or R-rated movies, the use of alcohol, or the abstinence from alcohol, fashion, age of the earth, worship style. These are, these are matters of opinion. You cannot find biblical evidence that will convince anyone. There's, there's some verses that tangentially touch on these things, and so you make a case and say, this is my opinion. So how do you interact with people in these kinds of areas? Well, how about instead of saying, the Bible says, how about you say, you know what? My opinion on this, based on my read of the text, is, is I... I think it's okay for Christians to drink alcohol. But I also know that it's okay if Christians decide not to drink alcohol. And I know we're supposed to be gracious with one another. And so let's have a conversation about alcohol. And if you're inviting somebody over to your house, ask them, do you drink? And if they don't drink, then don't serve. It's just grace. <laughs> be nice to each other. Anyway, talk about your biblical opinions and allow them to be opinions and talk about them that way. And when someone says, you know, I disagree, you're like, oh, really? Tell me what you think. Because these are just opinions. I think it's, it's easy to say, conviction, Jesus Christ, Lord, Son of God. And should Christians drink alcohol, yay or nay? These are obviously opposite ends of a spectrum. I think the hard stuff is in the middle when we talk about biblical persuasions. And these are options within biblical parameters. Let me just jump up and down on that one. Within biblical parameters. By going to God's Word and being responsible in our approach to studying it well. So the, but these are areas that are supported by fewer passages of Scripture or only indirectly addressed by Scripture or their peripheral issues. So this is the, the, the hard stuff, right? This is believers versus infant baptism. This is millennial viewpoints, spiritual gifts, gender roles in the home and in the church, uh, cultural engagement. The, there's a ton of them that are really important, right? By saying they're secondary, I'm not saying they're not important. These are issues of identity, calling, vocation. Like, these are huge issues. But they're not salvific issues. And that's why we call them secondary. So how do you interact with people there? Well, you need to be free to express your point of view your persuasion. You're, you need to be able to make a case for it. I am persuaded by the evidence I see in Scripture that this is the case. And yet, you need to demonstrate and treat others with dignity as they express their points of view. Your posture should not be that of trying to hammer down someone who disagrees with you to convince them you're right and they're wrong, but rather your posture, may I propose, 
should be one that says, help me understand your point of view. I've never grown up that way. That seems completely foreign to me. In fact, I'm a little offended by it. Help me understand where you're coming from. So for an example, like believers versus infant baptism. Here at Community Church, we practice believer's baptism, which means when a child reaches an age where for themselves they choose to follow Jesus, they make a profession of faith, and we throw them in the Atlantic Ocean. So, <laughs> but we are a non-denominational church, so how does that work? It seems like we just landed somewhere. So are we telling everyone who disagrees to go somewhere else? No. As a non-denominational church, we teach that and we practice that for the sake of clarity, even just pragmatically, so that we're not confusing people. But if you come from a Presbyterian background and you were baptized as an infant, and you grew up in the church, and you were a youth group, and you loved Jesus, and you gave your life to him when you were like 12, you don't have to get double-dipped. Like, that, that's just what it comes down to. There are churches that require you to be baptized as an adult if you were baptized as a child. As a non-denominational church, we say if you have been baptized as a child and it has continued in enduring significance, so we're not talking about the hoop jump, right? We're not talking about the family that, that, that got their child dedicated and never went to church again. But we're talking about if you've been raised in the faith, that, that original baptism is certainly valid. We're not going to make a big deal out of this. The Bible says be baptized. It's a little less clear on it's whether you're dunked, dipped, sprinkled, or super soakered. <laughs> so we're going to extend grace to one another. And now even now, you see how I just made fun of that? And there are people here saying, what a jerk. <laughs> not saying what a jerk, but that's a really significant issue for some people. And it's a source of conflict historically for hundreds of years. So I'm not trying to make light of these things as much as I'm trying to diffuse them and to say it's okay to talk about them. I give you that one example. There are a hundred more I could do, but eventually I have to sit down. You're going to need to go home at some point. So what it comes back to is more of a, a summary that says how do we handle our differences inside the church? Here's how we handle them. One phrase. Ooh. Let's go back to God's word on that. It's really interesting how when you say, let's go back to God's word on that, how that strips away the tradition you were raised in. It strips away your, your, your assumptions. It, 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 it sort of sands off the rough edges. It creates a common, uh, safe, uh, agreed-upon landscape for disagreement. You might convince somebody that you're right and they're wrong. They might convince you that maybe you've been really narrow and arrogant for a long time. But either way, that is our safe space for having these conversations. Does it always work? Absolutely not. It doesn't. Sometimes it's just you get heated. And you know what? There, there are some... And this is in no way saying one's better or one's worse. Some people are just wired to be denominational. And I've told you, denominations are a good and beautiful thing. And so if the idea of this tension and living with the tension, is that you're like, forget that. I, I, I don't want that. It's entirely appropriate to seek a church that is denominational, with which, that, that aligns to how you view the world and how you understand the scriptures. We celebrate that. But a community church, we're trying to create a safe place to disagree about matters of secondary importance 
issues of biblical persuasion, not conviction. And the, the ticket to it all is, well, let's go back to God's word together. So the church, the church has to land on some of these secondary issues for reasons of practice and clarity. We can't just waffle, right? We, you, you either baptize infants or, or you don't. You either let women preach or you don't. You, you can't hold both points of view at the same time. So from an organizational standpoint, the church has to land somewhere. But the posture with which we land there matters. And what we're saying as community church is that while we affirm these biblical persuasions, we are not elevating them to the place of conviction that we would take a bullet for it or think that it is a salvation issue, which means that personally, you are free to have a different viewpoint on these secondary issues. Two conditions. Number one, so long as it's based on God's word, a responsible attempt, that's right, amen, on God's word, And as long as it doesn't become a source of contention in the church, the commitment is to love, grace, and unity. So even as we talk about these things, if you disagree, disagree harmoniously, disagree graciously. There are differences among us. Live with the tension. Extend grace to one another. And even when you strongly disagree, treat others with dignity. It's not a perfect system. I haven't found a perfect system yet. But if we work together at it, we can actually find that we will grow in our appreciation for God's word, our love for one another, and community church will continue to give glory to God in all things. We're talking about differences and dignity. I think it's possible. And if you don't, come downstairs afterwards and we can have a 30-minute talkback session. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we declare that you are Lord. And we delight and celebrate that we can put your lordship, your headship, our submission to who you are and to your word. That's what unites us. We celebrate that what unites us far outweighs what divides us. God, I pray that this opening sort of opening shot, opening movement into areas of difference. God, may this... Uh, begin to take root in our hearts. These might be new ideas for some, these might be old ideas for others, but they're super important ideas. And we ask that you would allow them to take root in our heart and to start softening our hearts, that we would be motivated more by love for one another than by being right, without for a second waffling on our convictions of the most important truths about who you are, what you've done for us, what you invite us into, and the ultimate future to which you're calling us. Help us to have the courage and the wisdom to know when to die on a hill. And help us to have the grace and the other's centeredness to know when the best 
possible responses. Tell me more about where you're coming from. Help me understand. We love you. Keep our church united in the midst of our beautiful diversity because of your lordship alone. In your name, amen.